Well, good morning. Glad you could be with us today or whenever you're tuning in. As we continue our series in the Gospel of John, we're at the back end of chapter 3. So can I encourage you right now, if you are able to, grab a Bible, uh, open up your phone, get the Bible app happening uh, so you can read along with us where we are. And um, I'm going to start that uh, in chapter 3. I'm going to start reading from verse 22. Uh, I'm just going to read a little bit to you and then we'll have a chance to actually engage with a bit of that together because some of it will be on the screen shortly. So this is John chapter 3 starting in verse 22. So after this, and this means the conversation Jesus just had with Nicodemus earlier in the chapter. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptised. Now John that's John the Baptist, was also baptising because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptised and this was before John actually got put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan the one you testified about, look, he is baptising and everyone is going to him. So we've got this scene set here where Jesus and his disciples are in the same sort of area and and they're doing some baptising. We'll actually read in in chapter 4 that Jesus himself didn't baptise, it was his disciples. But now people were leaving that big gathering of John the Baptist and going to Jesus and his disciples. And so straight away we get this sense of that there's potentially some tension there from John's disciples, John's followers, that, hang on, we're not being as successful here. Um, Some other people are going to to Jesus and, and we're missing out a little bit. And so you get this little sense of some competition potentially and, and we need to see that for what it is and, and that will actually get revealed as we go through. Now, before we get into the next little part of this, uh, there's an image that's used that's actually used right through Scripture and that's the image of, of the groom and the bride. And so this is a motif used right through Scripture from, the, from early in Genesis right through to the end in Revelation. And particularly in the Old Testament, there's these um, pictures that keep popping up of, of God being like the groom, the nation of Israel being like his bride, and the unfaithfulness of Israel, but the continued faithfulness of God. And so using that idea, we come to a position where Um, John the Gospel writer and John the Baptist are using this image themselves. Now, um, before we get into that, there's this idea of the best man. Now, back in those days, and and not necessarily just in the Jewish context, but just in society in general, when a groom and a bride were about to be married, it was the best man's or or, or the, the close friend of the groom who would go and collect the bride and bring the bride to the groom. Now that's a little bit different to um, what we see a best man as being um, in his role today. So I've got a photo here. This is a photo taken nearly 25 years ago um, of myself and my best man, Phil. And um, they're two nicely staged photos. There's one where... I'm checking the watch because Tanya was running late 
Um, and then there's the other one where Phil and I were told to casually just wait and lean against the pole outside the church uh, again as we're waiting for Tanya to arrive. Um, and I remember that the best man's job, and this is what Phil's job for me was on my wedding day, he was to get me to church on time. And yes, I was there on time. Tanya wasn't. Um, but not only to get me there on time, his job then was to um, make fun of me to some degree in a speech later at the reception. And he did that quite admirably from, from recollection. He uh, told some stories that weren't quite true just to make me look a little bit worse. Um, got a few laughs along the way. But also that sense of wanting to give a blessing for the couple who were just married and, and wanting to see that this life together would be a fruitful life, would be a, a life of faithfulness and fidelity. It would be a life of uh, joy um, and it would be a life where God was honoured. And so that, that's how we sort of see the best man operating today. Um, and so, uh, Phil, I don't know if you're watching this, but if you are, thanks for being my best man. Still a great mate. And um, haven't we changed? Um, yeah, we're, all, we're a little bit lighter back then, but that's okay. So I want to continue the story now. Um, so we're in verse 27 of chapter 3. And so John replied, he said, A person can receive only what is given from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. That's a great line from John the Baptist. He, meaning Jesus, must become greater and I must become less. And there's something about John the Baptist in this. He understood his role. He understood his mission. He understood that his role, his God-given um, role right from birth was to be the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah to come. Be the one who would make Jesus known. And we read earlier in chapter 1 what that looked like for him. His goal in life was to point people to the Messiah, to the Christ, to Jesus and it was a joy for him to do that when he saw his mission being completed. So without that sense of competition, when his disciples came to him and said, hey, Jesus, that guy you declared to be the Lamb of God, he's now getting people going to him and they're baptising a whole bunch of people and we don't have many left with us. John's response was, that's the way it should be. That's what I've been about pointing people towards Jesus. And John had joy in that. And there's something in that for us, that a life spent on mission with God is about pointing people to Jesus and the joy that comes from others, uh, meeting him, having revelation of him and believing in him. So continuing in verse 31, the one who comes from above is above all, and the one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it and has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent, this is verse 34, speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. 
Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. I just want to read that last passage from the uh, message translation. Listen to these words. Verse 34, the father loves the son extravagantly. He turned everything over to him so he could give it away, a lavish distribution of gifts. That is why whoever accepts and trusts the son gets in on everything, life complete and forever. And that is also why the person who avoids and distrusts the son is in the dark and doesn't see life. So we've got a great picture here that John, the gospel writer, is painting of what a life with Jesus, believing in Jesus, looks like. It's the kind of life that, that Phil at, at my wedding and many best men in their speeches do, is the kind of life that we want and hope for, the couple being married, a life that is, is complete and a life is, that is forever and a life that um, is part of, you know, just aligning with God's mission in the world. And this kind of life, we read really clearly, is available through belief. But what does this actually mean? So James and Candace and Lauren and Capri just led us beautifully, and I love some of the footage in that, um, in a song called This I Believe. And, and the majority of the words from that song are taken from the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed is a, is a summary of statements initially formed in maybe the late 2nd century, maybe early 3rd century, of what Christians believe to be true about God, about Jesus, about the church, about life. And it's really important that we have a good understanding of what these foundational beliefs are for the Christian life. And this if you recall from maybe seven weeks ago, is one of the key themes of John's gospel. One of the key themes, that link between belief and obedience and life, the way we live our lives. And so we need to understand that to believe is more than just intellectual agreement that Jesus is God. Believing is a posture. It's a posture we have moment by moment, day by day. It's not a one-off decision. It is to live your life as though all things about Jesus are true. To believe means that trust is involved, that faith is involved. It's putting our whole life into the hands of another, into God's hands. It's basically saying to God, I trust you and I trust that the way you're calling me to live is the best way for me to live because you are God and I am not. You are my creator, I am the creation. It's the very issue that was wrestled with right back in the garden about human beings thinking they know the best way to live. And God gave human beings in, in, in this idea of free will the ability to choose him and to follow him and be obedient to him or to reject him and try to do it our own way. Real belief always expresses itself in obedient action, not just action, but obedient action. Look what Jesus said about this in John's Gospel in chapter 14. 
Verse 23, Jesus replied to them, he said, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching and my father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. So here's actually a really good explanation of the eternal life that we're exploring here in chapter 3, verse 36 of chapter 3 specifically. Eternal life is available to us because God is eternal. Eternal life is available to us because the Holy Spirit that Jesus sent that, that comes to live in us as believers, that Spirit as part of God is eternal. And when that Spirit dwells in us and shapes us and moulds us and transforms us to become the type of people who are obedient to the teachings of Jesus and to the, the truth of Scripture... When we become those type of people, we live our lives in, in what the Bible describes as the kingdom of God or this eternal life. And it's eternal because God himself is eternal. So we just read in that passage from chapter 14, God says, we will come and make our home with them. And that's not just the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but that's the picture we see at the end of Revelation where God himself dwells in the city of Jerusalem, the new city in the new earth, and God is with his people. And we have this eternal life. It's not some reward system that if you're good, you get to live forever. The eternal life is eternal because it is with God. And God is in us through his spirit. Paul, Paul puts it this way. When we look at Galatians chapter 2, you may be familiar with this. Paul writes this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In another translation in the Amplified, listen to these words. Same verse. I have been crucified with Christ. That is, in him I have shared his crucifixion. There's that point of surrender. And it says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith, by adhering to, relying on, and completely trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So more than any other measure, our lived lives reflect not what we say we believe, but what we truly believe. It's easy for us to say some things that I believe this, I believe that, I believe whatever, but it's our actions. Our, the way we actually live reflects what we truly believe. I'll give you an example. You might, you might say, um, I believe prayer is really important and it makes a big difference in your life. And then in action, in reality, you could live a life where you hardly ever pray. So, see how they don't sort of go together? I can say that prayer is really important, but unless I live that, unless it's part of how I live out my life, then it's not really true. I don't really believe it if I'm not willing to do it. Simple, simple illustration. There's a Danish philosopher called Soren Kierkegaard. He puts it this way. He says, as you have lived, so have you believed. 
And I like that because it actually has to marry not only our words and our attitudes, it marries our actions. We believe something when we live as though it were true. I believe in gravity. I can't see gravity. I can't touch it. Uh, It's a concept that I'm aware of, but I know through experience that if I put myself in a position where I'm high up and I remove myself from what is ever holding me up, maybe it's the edge of a building or a balcony or something, I know that gravity will kick in and I will be dragged down to whatever's below me. I know that to be true, so I live according to that truth. I believe in gravity. And so there are times, just on Friday, I went for a walk, some of the beautiful walks we have on the Central Coast, and I found myself on a cliff edge with a massive drop down to some rocks and then the ocean. And I walked up to the cliff edge and sort of, whoa, hang on, I'm not going to get too close because I believe in gravity. It shaped the way I acted, shaped the way I lived. So here we have, we have some words that are popping up here, these words of belief and faith and trust and hope. All of us actually believe in something. Whether you can articulate that or not, we all believe certain things to be true about life and we live accordingly. See, the biblical picture of belief is not just a list of facts to affirm. And that could be the danger. And I think that's why a lot of churches, particularly the Protestant churches, moved away from things like the Apostles' Creed because it used to be just this thing to recite that didn't seem to have a lot of meaning. But boy, there's some depth in those statements. And when we actually live as though those things are true, it shapes who we are, who we're becoming and how we engage with the world around us. According to the scriptures, belief is active and it's dynamic and it's alive and it's personal. And sometimes, maybe a lot of the time, it's even risky to believe that Jesus is who he said he is and he's done what he said he's done. Belief is a way of responding to and receiving what God freely offers us true life, eternal life, life with him, a free gift. And so to believe in this way means that we believe that God is there. God is real. God is with us. God is for us. And God offers us a life beyond our imagination and a future beyond our imagination. These things are the things that are evident as we engage with Scripture about who God is and what He's like. Essentially, our belief is a response to God's faithfulness towards us, a response to God's love towards us. And that's the good news that Jesus bring. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what we are pinning our hopes and our lives on. That God is faithful to his character, to his word. That God has our best in mind when he looks at us, when he calls us to live a certain way, when he challenges us, when he transforms us. He's got our best in mind. And there's a trust that we need when we step into that. It's a a belief that God can be trusted at his word. 
See, our belief can't be reduced to this singular moment, but it's an ongoing, moment by moment, day by day, confidence and trust in God as a way of living into what is most true, as a way of living into reality. So remember a few weeks ago we discussed that when John was writing this gospel and he wrote it in Greek, and when the Greek is translated into the English, there are some words that have a present continuous tense that can't easily be translated into English. And the word believe in most contexts in which it's used in John's writing is one of these words. It's not a one-off decision, but it's a continuous action or position. So essentially, John is writing this, and this is what he says. This is in um, verse uh, chapter 20. He says, These are written so that you may... Now, the original word that we put into English is believe, but it's best translated that you may go on believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by going on believing, you may go on having life in his name. That's why John wrote this. But as Jeff pointed out to us a little earlier, there are things that happen in our world which makes it really difficult to go on believing when, when we see things that don't make sense to us. Not only externally to us, but quite often in our own lives. Whether it's physical illness or a breakdown of relationship or some sort of mental illness we're struggling with. Practical things like, like you know, health and finances and accommodation. And, and sometimes we just struggle that things don't seem to be aligning with, with the reality that, that there is a good God who wants good things for me and is with me and is for me. And sometimes my circumstances don't seem to align with that or at least what I think they should align with. And that's why I love this idea that it's God's faithfulness that is important. God is faithful to us. And when we read Scripture, when we read the story of the nation of Israel and the characters involved in that, those stories aren't there to tell us about those particular characters. Those stories are there to tell us about God and what God is like. See, at the start of this series, we, we stated that our focus on John's gospel will be an exploration into the equipping of one another as the church so that you may believe and so that others who do not yet know Jesus may believe and so we can find common ground with others and, and assist them in, in coming to a point of belief and share with them the hope that we have in Jesus. You may remember this. We said there was three main things that we think will happen as we explore John's gospel, that, that it will reveal reality, that it will, it will help us pursue reality and will equip us to share reality with others. And that's what we're parking in right now. Even in chapter 3, we're sitting in this, in this space where John is writing about 
who Jesus is. He's writing about how John the Baptist engaged with Jesus and sees him for who he is. And we're seeing that the reality is that it's a life of belief. And then how do we pursue that life of belief? Not as a one-off decision, but as a moment-by-moment, day-by-day disposition to go, I am sitting in the reality of God being faithful, God being true, God being for me and with me. And so as we journey, even to the point we're only at the end of chapter 3 of John's Gospel, there's 21 chapters. We're only at the end of chapter 3. We're starting to see already John's intention is to call his readers, the hearers of this Gospel, to call them to a position of belief. To believe in such a way that your life is changed that you live in the reality of the kingdom of God. You live in the reality of this eternal life, eternal because of who is with you in that, not because it's some reward for being good. So I just want to finish with how John, even up to this point, has been touching on this over and over and over. So in chapter 1, a couple of verses here. Verse 6 and 7, There was a man sent from God whose name was John, that's the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all might believe. Verse 12, Yet to all who did receive him, that's Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In chapter 2 we read, Verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee, that's the miracle of turning the water into the wine, uh, what he did in the, in the Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs to which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Verse 23, now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. In chapter 3, we're reading, verse 12, I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? That was a conversation with Nicodemus, the, the Pharisee, the religious leader. Verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 18, chapter 3, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Verse 36, where we were today. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. This is only three chapters of John's writing, and the idea of belief just occurs over and over and over. And we will see as we continue through the Gospel that this theme is it does not go away. And we just read from um, chapter 20 that John's whole reason for writing this so that you would believe in Jesus. And so we've got to understand that belief is not this mental assent to an idea about Jesus. It's a whole of life surrender. It's a giving of myself to him, for him, to say, Jesus, you are 
the Son of God. You are God in the flesh. And as I read about you, as I engage with you, as I talk to you and you talk to me through prayer and through the written word, through your indwelling Holy Spirit, I come to know who you are and my life is nothing without being in relationship with you. My life is nothing without being surrendered to you so that you would use me for your purposes, that you would use this individual to be on mission with you, to be used by you and for you so that others may believe. That's what John's pointing to. That's what we need to grab hold of as we wrestle with this as a church, as we engage with this writing, as we allow the Holy Spirit to speak truth to us and to bring revelation to us. We need to be a people who, who not just say we believe something, but we live it. We live it out and it makes a difference to the lives around us because that indwelling Holy Spirit, that Christ that is living in me, not I living, but Christ in me, is doing his work in the world. That redemptive and reconciliation um, that Jeff touched on earlier, that, that through us, God and his indwelling spirit, spirit is reconciling all things, all of creation back to himself. This is a life worth living. And so I think John just emphasizes this over and over and over because he gets it. He got it. He lived it. And his deep passion for us is that we too would step into that, that position of life and say, God, I believe. And so as I finish this morning, I'm reminded of a, a story in one of the other Gospels where there, there is a man whose son is not well and he asks Jesus to heal his son. And Jesus' response to him is that, yeah, that, that, that's possible if you believe. And this man's simple prayer was, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. And that's just what I want to leave us with. This, this is not easy. This is a lifelong journey. But my prayer for me and my prayer for us is that, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Thanks.